This morning we take just a break, a small break from our continuing study through the book of 1 Timothy, and I direct you to the book of Luke chapter 15 as we endeavor to consider the parable of the prodigal son that was taught by the Lord Jesus to a public crowd, a mixed audience of disciples and unconverted people. Now we read in Luke chapter 15... And verse 1, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Luke 15, 1, The publicans and sinners came to hear him. Now just fathom for a moment what was taking place in this passage in the immediate context of the parable that we hope to get to, that we intend to speak to you about today. What we find here might not seem like a very surprising thing to us that publicans and sinners would come to hear Christ, but to the religious elite of that day, to the Pharisees and to the scribes of that day, that was a, an audacious thing. That was a scandal. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 2, they murmured, saying, "'This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them.'" To the Pharisee and the scribe, it was offensive that Jesus permitted people who were very publicly sinners to draw near unto him. Read the word there in chapter 15 and verse 2. They drew near unto him for them to draw near to Jesus and then go to the table with Jesus, which implies an even greater degree of fellowship. He sits with them at a table. He eats with them. He talks with them. To the religious elite of Jesus' day, that was offensive. And not only did they look down their noses at the publicans and the sinners, but they criticized Jesus himself because he would lower himself to such a degree as to associate with people who the religious elite of that day considered to be sinful. Now, by the way, as we introduce this to you today, this really isn't our main thrust in our message, but might I just suggest that if our religion becomes so, that we are more critical of people who want Christ because of things they've done in their past than we are of our own sinfulness, then something is wrong in our religion. The New Testament church is a religion about... A loving Savior saving people from their sins by His free and sovereign grace. And we believe in salvation by grace. And the Bible emphatically declares that our deliverance from sin is by God's grace. The word grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. And so to be saved by grace means that there's nothing you offered to God, there's nothing you brought to the table, there's nothing we present to Him, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves good enough for Him, but we were, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in trespasses and in sins, and God in His unmerited favor, His love and His grace, His mercy towards us, He has resurrected our souls from death and sin to life in Christ. By grace, our sins were imputed unto Christ upon the cross, and He bore our sins as if He were guilty of them when He had no sin of His own. 
And he gave us his righteousness in that transaction between God the Father and God the Son upon the cross. If you understand that, you know that this true religion that Christ has instituted in the world, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the new covenant experience, the kingdom of heaven, it is about people who were lost and now are found. And so should it be any surprise to you or to me when people who at one point in their lives were, as it were in this parable that we look at today, living with the very swine of this world, come to themselves and draw near to Christ and worship Christ. Should be no surprise at all, nor should it be surprising when Christ joyfully fellowships with them. That is what our religion is all about. In fact, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, we even learned, as we were studying that chapter of 1 Timothy together, that the chief of sinners himself is an example of God's grace upon undeserving individuals. If there was ever a man in the world that you would think he's not ever going to be a follower of the Lord, he will never find grace, he will never find mercy, God has no use for him, it was Saul of Tarsus. You see, Saul of Tarsus wasn't merely a publican and a sinner. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee that was rounding up and executing Christians. And God in His grace, just Saul and just Jesus, on the road to Damascus, Jesus to strike him down and arrest him with His grace. He changes Saul of Tarsus. He quickens him. He brings him to life. And Saul of Tarsus would spend the rest of his days preaching the gospel and die a martyr's death. I say that to show the unpredictability of God's grace. Who ever would have thought that a madman full of hate bent on genocide against Christians would one day become the most fervent and adamant preacher of the gospel? None of us would have ever imagined that. And that is exactly what God did. That is what God does. And so when publicans and sinners feel compelled to Christ, what would that look like in our day? You know, in our day, there are many movements that are contrary to the gospel of Christ. There are many factions of people that are contrary to the word of God. And in this country, we, we usually spend all week yelling at them or about them or being yelled at by them on social media. That's kind of how I spend my week. I don't know about you. It should be no surprise when someone who's formerly a drug addict suddenly begins to be convicted of that sin and begins to draw near to Christ, desiring to fellowship with Christ. Should that be surprising? No, because that's what this is all about. How about a murderer? How about a robber? How about someone in any of these movements and factions in our society? We should be expecting that rather than skeptical of that. As the publicans and sinners drew near to hear Christ, they hear of Him... They hear that he's there, they see that he's there, and they begin to yearn for him and to come unto him and to listen to him. And beyond listening to him, they begin to eat with him. Now to the Pharisee, this is offensive. How dare this rabbi eat with people who we think are unworthy? 
And what they didn't understand was at that very moment in human history, these publicans and these sinners were closer to God than they were in all their religious pomp and their religious show and their self-righteousness and their self-justification and in their mind their salvation by works and all the promises that they thought were given to them in the word of God being the seed of Abraham. At this moment, you had publicans and sinners, people who were living in rebellion to God by their wicked behavior who were closer to the Christ than the extremely religious people. Now, this ought to make extremely religious people kind of cringe for a moment because this is not what we would expect. It's not what we would anticipate. Now, sometimes we get into this idea because we do believe in church discipline, that through church discipline we're keeping the church pure. Let me tell you, friends, the church is not pure through anything we do. The church is pure through the blood of Jesus. We do believe in church discipline and accountability, but it's not in the some feigned attempt to keep the church pure. You cannot keep the church pure. That sounds more like the Pharisees than it does the Christians. These Pharisees, they murmur. It is in reply to this, and you know what it means to murmur if you're not familiar with the definition of that, but to murmur means to complain under your breath. In other words, when you're murmuring, you're not shouting, you're not screaming, you're not adamantly saying something, but you're standing off to the side and you're grumbling under your breath. Any of you with parents, you, you know very much what murmuring looks like because when you tell your children to feed the animals or to take out the trash or to brush their teeth or you know, wash their hair or do any other thing that they don't want to do other than play video games sometimes, you, you hear a lot of murmuring. These people are murmuring. They're complaining and grumbling under their breath. Now this prompts Jesus to give in Luke 15 three parables that demonstrate the joy in the very heart of God when sinners repent. And so this is a joyful message. This is an extraordinarily happy message, but it is born out of this controversy of religious elite people criticizing even the very Son of God Himself for fellowshipping with people that they deem to be unworthy. Now, two parables that Jesus gives prior to the prodigal son, and we're just going to give you them in basic summary form because we want to look at the prodigal son. Jesus first says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And, of course, these people growing up around livestock and seeing shepherds, it was a very common form of making a living and providing for yourself and your family in that day and age, many of these people would have been very familiar with that. Well, how many of you that have not 100 sheep don't leave the 99 to go after the one? In other words, in this parable, one of the points of this parable is even the one is important to Christ. One sheep is important to Christ. Now, we understand in the biblical framework of things that the word sheep always has reference to a child of God. When it refers to people, you're learning of a child of God. When the Word of God speaks about those who are not children of God, it uses different animals to describe them. What animals are those? Well, it refers to them as goats in Matthew 25. And you have a distinction between the sheep and the goats. Peter referred to them as hogs and dogs. Jesus would also do that. He says, render not, throw, cast not your pearls to the swine, nor 
render things that are holy unto the dogs. They'll turn again and they'll rend you. And so when you read of hogs and dogs and sometimes serpents and goats, you're reading of those who do not belong to Christ. But when you read in the Bible of sheep, what we read has reference to children of God, people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't use sheep as an example. By happenstance, he does this intentionally. And which one of you, when you found that lost sheep, you shepherds, you lay it on your shoulders, you carry it back to the fold, you come back rejoicing. In fact, he cometh home and he calls his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Now, this begs the question, are there any truly just persons on the planet that need no repentance? No, we all need repentance. None of us are just in and of ourselves. So implied in that passage, in that statement, is the concept of self-righteousness. In other words, God is more pleased with that sheep that's been put on the shoulder and carried back to the fold than he is with people who, in their self-righteousness, think they need no repentance. He gives another parable. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver. Now this is something that we can all relate to. Not all of us here raise livestock. In fact, I would reason to say in our modern world, I don't think any of you raise livestock. Any of you have any cows? Not not one hand. How about sheep? Any livestock? You have cows? Quails. I don't... Okay. Do, Do quails count as livestock? So I raise feral children... And, and you can't sell them. But anyway, just kidding. In this next parable, we can all sympathize, we can all understand, because every single one of us in our economy today has to deal with currency. We have to deal with finances. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? If you lost something valuable... You would search the home for that which is valuable. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice for me, for I have found the peace which was lost. Likewise, I say unto you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. There's joy in heaven every time a sinner repents. Now, Just as we begin to consider this, what does it mean to repent? What is he talking about here? Well, there's a couple of ways that people have interpreted this. They could look at this and have looked at this as that initial changing of the nature when the heart, after the new birth, begins to yearn for Christ and seek after Christ, culminating in their conversion as a disciple. Now, most certainly that is true. At the same time, I believe this is true for every single time any child of God turns from their sin back to their Savior. So you might be thinking, is he talking about maybe when God saves them and they begin to seek after Christ? Or is he talking about when maybe someone like David falls away from steadfastness 
You remember, we'll talk about this in just a moment. David sins with Bathsheba and sends her husband away to die to cover up his sin. And it's a great scandal. It brings great reproach upon the name of God in Israel. It's probably one of the worst scandals, one of the biggest heartbreaks in all of the Bible. Does this apply to that? It certainly applies to that. These parables apply to every occurrence of a child of God falling into sin and God recovering them from that, leading them to repentance. Now, please understand, in our day-to-day lives, there is a part of repentance that involves our will and our turning But we should also understand that in moments of repentance, it is the goodness of God that leadeth us to repentance. Repentance doesn't happen in a vacuum. It is not merely the product of us. It is always the result of God working in our hearts through conviction, through chastening, through the giving of his grace to teach us. If we ever repent, it is because God has first and is continually working in our lives. And he does this through various means. And then in those moments when we do physically, personally repent, it is the response of our will and our mind in our walk to the work of God that is ongoing in our lives. Understand that God is in an ongoing work in our lives. He has begun a good work in us and he will perform it unto the Day of the Lord, according to the book of Philippians chapter 1. So he works in our lives from the moment of the new birth, and he continues to work in our lives even until the day that he calls us to be with him. So God never ceases to work in us. And any time, any time a child of God comes to repentance, God rejoices. The angels in heaven rejoice. And by extension of that, oh, how we should rejoice. How we should rejoice. Now, in these first two parables, one is a matter of livestock. The shepherd would care for the sheep. Many times he he knew the sheep, he knew their personality, and they were dear to him. And the second, it is something that this woman counted to be a treasure, something that was very valuable to her. We can get a glimpse into the purpose of God, the mind of God, as it relates to us in looking at these parables that God uses to describe us. A lost sheep, one that he's cared for and fed and worries for and brings back, and then a coin, something that is great, has great value. Verse 11. This next parable is about a prodigal son... While a shepherd may love his sheep and care for and feed and protect, anoint with oil to keep the infectious bugs away, while a woman may value her currency, her livelihood, her nest egg, I don't believe that there's a stronger tie of love in this world than the way a father feels for his children. And you can see how the various aspects of how God views us are revealed in these three parables. First you have the shepherd relation, then you have the treasure relation, and here you have the relationship between a father and a son 
a son who goes astray. Now, just as a little disclaimer as we look at this parable, parables don't completely parallel the realities they depict. What do you mean by that? When you look at a parable, when you study a parable, you have to focus on the big picture. You want to look at the moral of the story. In this case, the joy that is in heaven when a sinner repents, and we're all sinners. And so there's joy in heaven when we repent. Anytime we repent, from the first time we repent to the last time we repent, there is joy when we turn from sin. And here you have it described even in the close ties of a father and a son. Now we've already defined this and given it the title that most of you probably have in your Bibles at the heading of the page, the parable of the prodigal son. What does the word prodigal mean? In our day, we think of prodigal as someone who's gone away, right? If you say the prodigal son, sometimes we might have said that I have a friend who went prodigal, or I've got a child who is prodigal. And we say that and we mean that the person has departed from the father's house. But the word prodigal actually defines as recklessly wasteful. So the prodigal son is the recklessly wasteful son. He is recklessly wasteful. If you're familiar with this parable, and I'm sure most of you here are, you know that when the son goes out, as we'll see in just a moment, he wastes his substance on riotous living. Riotous living. That's another word that we need to define. When we think of riotous today, we think of the root word of that, and the root word of that is what? Riot. Well, what happens when a person riots or when people riot? They go downtown, they break into buildings, they throw things through windows, they flip over cars, they burn things. And when I see this on TV, I'm just thinking, why don't they just turn the police loose on these people and put a stop to that? And I have to get this plug in anytime I can because vengeance is not executed speedily on the wicked. The hearts of men are set to do evil in them. When that happens in society... The powers that be need to drop the hammer on people. That should not be tolerated in a lawful society. That is lawlessness, and when it is tolerated, bad things happen in a society. Because other men see that and they say, we can go burn this town down and nobody's going to say a thing about it. And so law enforcement needs to deal very swiftly and very sternly with that sort of behavior. But that's what we think of when we think of a riot. Back in the early mid-90s, I had an uncle who was involved in a prison riot. He was a prison guard. And there was a, a very violent riot in the Talladega Federal Pen that he was working as a guard in. And they beat him multiple times and locked him in a closet. And he was set free by a couple of men he'd never seen before. They were dressed like prisoners. He'd never seen these prisoners before. And to this day, I think he believes that they were angels. But the door gets opened as they had promised to come back in and kill him. And these two men let him out. He runs through the tear gas, spent some time in the hospital. And that's what we think of when we think of a riot. But the word riot in 1611, which is what we're reading, a translation from 1611, the King James Bible, actually means extravagance. It can mean a loud party or a show, but it conveys extravagance. And so to be riotous is to live in extravagance, 
The word prodigal means recklessly wasteful. That gives us a clue into what sort of a lifestyle this young man was living. The prodigal son, the recklessly wasteful son. And by the way, I'm going to go off on a tangent for just a moment, so forgive me. No surprise. No way it's coming. Um, there's a song, a contemporary song, that with the exception of one word, I really like. And it's the song, Reckless Love. Now, I love singing about the love of God, and I like the tune of that. I like the structure of it, but might I just interject here, God's love is not reckless. God's love is purposeful. God's love is self-sacrificing. God's love is intense, but God's love is not reckless. Now, I love to supplement the synonym for the word. Would we feel comfortable singing the prodigal love of God? I wouldn't think you'd feel comfortable singing that. That's a synonym for the word reckless. Recklessly wasteful. God's not reckless. So we're learning about a wasteful son. Now let's dig into the parable. A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. This is what you might consider act one of the parable of the prodigal son. Act one. This younger of the two sons asks for his inheritance before his father's death. I have known of people to give their inheritance before their death so they can see their family enjoy it. This is interesting, the the inheritance, the concept of an inheritance. It's one of the things that Solomon laments in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know Ecclesiastes, to, to use maybe my word for it, is written from the perspective of an old curmudgeon. What is a curmudgeon? An ill-tempered person. I often refer to my father as the curmudgeon-in-chief. And he didn't know what the word meant, so he looked it up in the dictionary, and then it was really funny to him. But the curmudgeon is one who is maybe the cynical old man that looks at life in general, and as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. One of the vanities that Solomon laments is that you can live like a miser your whole life and save all your money and never spend a dime, pinch a penny so hard that Lincoln himself squeals. And when you die, you end up in the same dirt as a pauper. And unbeknownst to you, the money that you leave behind ends up being inherited by someone who wasted as a fool. And the point of that was it's vanity and vexation of spirit, so you might as well enjoy the fruit of your labor as you live in the world. And might I say that if you're living in the world, it is a fine, God-honoring thing to enjoy the fruit of your labor. So I've known people who give an inheritance to their children even before they're deceased. Now we know that an inheritance is something that is given, that is willed to someone when the person who is the testator is the word, passes away, that which was given in the will and testament then becomes the property of the person it was left to. We've all heard of the reading of the will. We're all familiar with things such as that. This young man says to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. In other words, give me my inheritance now. I don't want to wait until you die. Now, this is sinful for two reasons, and you'll see that this 
this man violates at least two of the Ten Commandments in this request. Number one, an inheritance is generally given when a father is dead. Generally, the inheritance is given when the father is dead. And so the son dishonors his father. What is one of the Ten Commandments? Honor thy father and thy mother. Was he honoring his father when he looked at his father as if he were as good as dead? In other words, I know I'm supposed to get this when you die, but as far as I'm concerned, you might as well already be dead. Just give it to me and let me go. How disrespectful to his father was that? Did that honor him? No, it did not honor him. It did not honor him at all. And so he violates that commandment. But there's another commandment that he violates that led him to that sin. Also in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. Paul said in Romans 7 that he learned that lust was sin before he was born again when God wrote the law on his heart and he felt from the heart that it was wrong to covet. But he learned that lust was sinful when he read in the law, thou shalt not covet. Coveting and lusting after things are one and the same. To lust is to covet. To covet is to lust. This man coveted, he lusted after the wealth of his father. And he violates that law as well. As the parable continues, this man, the father, responds. He gives him his inheritance. He's, this young man says goodbye to his father and his brother and all of his father's house. His father was a very wealthy man. And he departs into a far country. This young man packs up and he, to put it in modern vernacular, he lives like a rock star. He lives like a rock star. Our scripture says, Not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living, with reckless, reckless, wasteful extravagance. He blew the money. Now this is unrelated but I think you can infer some things about things in our, our country, our culture, such as the lottery. Everybody thinks, win the lottery, all your wildest dreams will come true. And they may for about six months until you blow it all. If you look up statistically, people who win the lottery end up more broke and more bankrupt after winning the lottery than they were before they won the lottery. Now, there's not a verse in the Bible that says something like a lottery would be inherently sinful, but it's really hard, it's really hard to approve things like that when the Bible does say, Thou shalt not what? Covet. Can you buy Something like that without coveting after the prize that you could potentially win, you know, one in a billion chance of winning, you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning or eaten by jaws. Can you buy one of those without coveting? I suppose you could say, well, it's a game, it's fun, I really don't care, it's my $2 donation to the 
you know, Tennessee Education Department because we don't have one here. Everybody drives to Tennessee, you know. I don't think. This man, he receives this inheritance. He goes out. He lives like a rock star. And as usually happens, he spent it all. He spent it all. Now we read in verse 14, When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. That means that he did not have food, he did not have shelter, he did not have clothing. He was now a pauper. It's one of the problems with wealth that was not earned. And the book of Proverbs talks about this a lot. It speaks to these truths. Wealth that isn't earned many times is not appreciated, and because of that, it is squandered. Does that mean an inheritance is wrong? No, it doesn't. Does that mean wealth is wrong? No, it doesn't. However, as a general principle, when a carnally-minded person gets a hold of great wealth that he didn't earn, usually isn't good for him. I always think about it as we... Think about things such as lottery and inheritance. If God really wanted me to be a millionaire, I'm sure he would have made me a millionaire. Guess what it is apparent and obvious that God did not want for me? He did not want me to be a millionaire because guess what I'm not? I'm not a millionaire. Now there were many men in the Bible that were very wealthy that honored God, men such as Job, men such as Abram, Abraham, but... We should be content with whatever the Lord has blessed us with. One of our upcoming messages from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, is going to be contentment and not to, not to obsessively pursue after wealth. There are more important things in life than wealth. I tell you what, if you sit home at the end of the day and you have a spouse or children or grandchildren that love you and that respect you and you've got friends and you've got the gospel... You are rich. The world's wealth cannot buy that. And you are a wealthy person. You look at your husband, you look at your wife, you look at your children, you look at your grandchildren, pick up your Bible and read it, and you just think, I am more wealthy than Bill Gates or Jobs or Forbes or any of these other millionaires, billionaires, Rock stars, Elijah and I were talking about this the other day. You go and look at how many people who are literal rock stars. You know, the people that the figure of speech is named after living like a rock star. Read about how many of those people end up dying of a drug overdose or committing suicide. If that were the life that made everybody happy, don't you think their end would be different than it is? That's not true happiness. Money doesn't buy you happiness. Somebody said no, but it does buy sports cars, and that's pretty much the same thing. But no, money doesn't buy you happiness. I can tell you as the owner of, a, of an old raggedy Corvette, they are more of a problem sometimes than they are a, a blessing, especially the, when they don't run like right now. He takes this money, and he goes, and he lives riotously. He spends all, and there's a mighty famine in the land, and he begins to be in want and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields, the citizen of that country, to feed swine. Now, 
In this verse is contained so much insult to an Israelite, so much insult to a Jew. Because of their relationship with God in the Old Testament, because of their lineage being descendants of Abraham, to go into a foreign city and have to be employed by a Gentile. That was offensive. I have to work for maybe a Philistine, maybe a Canaanite. Pick the ite of the land. It's not contained here, and it doesn't really matter. For a Jewish man to have the inheritance of a wealthy Israelite father and lose it and end up employed as a hired servant, a hired slave... Nothing could be more offensive than that. And the work that this man had to do wasn't just any work. You notice he wasn't employed as a shepherd. He wasn't employed as a sower to go forth and sow or one to pull a plow or to lead a pair of oxen. What was it that this Jewish man was sent to do in this parable? Sent into the fields to feed Swine. What are swine? Swine are pigs. Pigs. In the Old Testament, swine pigs are unclean. They're labeled that by God in the law. And as a physical nation, Israel, they were commanded not to eat swine, not to eat pork. Now we know that Jesus has fulfilled the law to a jot and a tittle. Those are the smallest marks of punctuation in the Hebrew language. We know that That commandment was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus, and so it is not binding on us. And we know that we're a Gentile congregation anyway. God didn't give the commandment to us, but he gave it to the nation of Israel. But to a Jew, nothing could be more offensive than to take care of the unclean beasts. They didn't want to touch them. They didn't want to smell them. They didn't want to look at them. And here this man is starving to death as a hired servant... In a famine, think about all the privilege this young man must have had growing up. And I know that that's a social term right now, privilege, but I don't know a better word to describe what this man had when he was a boy. He had a wealthy father, and he had everything that he could ever want. In his father's house, there were many hired servants, he would later on say, So there were people that tended to and looked after this young man, that perhaps educated this young man. We would say that he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And many of us in America, compared to the rest of the world, have grown up with a silver spoon in our mouths. He's feeding swine. Verse 16, he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. He's so desperate, he would have even eaten the food that was fed to the pigs. This word husks likely had reference to the seed pods of a carob tree, which is an evergreen tree in the pea family. John Gill writes in his commentary that Jews considered this to be the food of beasts. In other words, it wasn't even in their mind suitable for human consumption. No one would even give him husks. He's starving to death. 
Now, as we finish looking at the parable, we're going to draw some conclusions, brief, short conclusions about this teaching. And we'll see the value of affliction in the life of a child of God. There is value in affliction. Afflictions teach us things, especially when they're brought about by our sinful behavior. The same way that chastening teaches a young child. Well, as he's in the field and he's hungry and he's desperate and he's begging even for the carob seed pods and no one would give him any food. We read in verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I'm starving to death. And my father even employs hired servants that have more food than they could ever eat. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now I want you to hang on to that coming to himself moment. Because as we think about repentance in just a minute and some of the facts, conclusions we can draw from this, you'll see that a coming to himself moment is so integral to repentance. Now we know that God quickens us when we're dead in sin and all of a sudden there's an awareness of our sin. And one could, if he were to run this as someone who was dead in sin... This would be the moment if it were ran in that way that God opens the man his eyes to his own sinfulness. Before he goes back to the Father and begs the Father, you have this opening of the eyes. But in every case of repentance, in every case of our turning from sin, there is an opening of the eyes to the sinfulness of what we've done and, what does he say in verse 19, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. There is an awareness of our own unworthiness that is a part of this repentance that we experience. When we genuinely are repentant, we do not feel ourselves worthy. So you might think, is my repentance is it all, what it ought to be? Am I really sorry for something that I've done? Until we come to the point where we say, I am wrong, I am the problem, I am unworthy then we're not where we need to be. We're not where we need to be. That is exactly what this man does. This is why when someone joins the church, we ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He what? That He died for your sins. Because when the person confesses, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, they're saying that the only hope I have of glory is found in Christ. And I am unworthy in and of myself. By the way, this is why Christians ought to be the happiest people on the face of the earth. Because we know we're unworthy and we know we've found grace and that Jesus has given His worth to us as the way, the truth, and the life. So this man, this man arises, he arose, and he came unto his father. Now this is the beautiful part of this teaching. Is you as dads, what would you do? What do you think your father would do? If you had taken an inheritance and 
slapped him in the face, as it were, assuming, treating him as if he's as good as dead, leaving with half his half of his substance, that which was yours in his inheritance, what he would leave you, the will, as it were. The father sees the son a great way off. He's outside and he sees the son coming up. When the father saw him, he had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. When the father sees his son coming back, turning from his wasteful, sinful lifestyle, the father falls on him. He loves him. He rejoices. Notice the place in the parable where this occurs. The son doesn't come to the father and say, Father, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. And then the father reacts in that way. No. When he sees the son coming back to him, a great way off, he's so happy that the son is back, he doesn't even ask about the circumstances of his return. He's so overcome with joy to have his son with him again. We absolutely cannot fully understand or comprehend the depth of God's love for us. We simply can't come to grasp. What does Paul say in Ephesians? He describes it as the height and the depth and the breadth of God's love. God's love is something that we cannot understand. It's too great. It's like an ocean that we drown in. We simply cannot fathom how loving he is to his children. The son rehearses his speech to the father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. The son fully intends to go and to work for his father the rest of the days of his life. But what does the father say? Well, you know what? You, you really messed up and I guess you can feed some of my swine. I'll give you more than husks. No. The father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now again, the moral of the story is there is joy in heaven when sinners turn from sin. Any time, every time, the first time, the fiftieth time, the last time. There's joy in heaven when sinners turn from sin, when we repent. But you remember what sparked this conversation between Jesus and the audience in front of him, don't you? Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. You remember that this man is the younger brother. You remember he had another brother. His elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew, drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Why is there a party? Why didn't I get the invite? He's coming in after a long day of work. 
This part is a warning to us. This part is a warning to us. The servant says, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. He, the brother, was angry and would not go in. He's bitter. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. Because of this, Elder Joe Holder refers to this as the parable of the prodigal sons. Because both of these sons, in one way or another, were struggling with a sin issue. This older son was angry. The father comes to him and the son says, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. I've been a good son, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, that explains a little bit of that extravagance, doesn't it? Devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me. All that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, was lost, and is found. In other words, son... Don't think for a minute that just because you were faithful, we shouldn't rejoice when your son returns. And at the same time, everything in my house was yours the entire time. Because you had full fellowship with me uninterruptedly through the entire time that your brother was away. So again, what's the moral of the story here? We should rejoice when one repents. Now, there are eight conclusions that I want to share with you in about four minutes. Some sons go prodigal. And when I say prodigal in this parable, it means to be extravagant and recklessly wasteful, but the way that we generally view being prodigal today, because what Jesus uses it as a metaphor for, is sin. Some sons go prodigal. In fact, at times, we might all be, to some degree, a prodigal son. Number two, a prodigal son is a prodigal son. This teaches such a heartwarming message and lesson. If you struggle with people in your life that fall away from Christ and turn away from Christ or they fall away from discipleship, what is it, the statistic, that about 80% of people, when they become adults at 18, leave the faith in America? The rest of that story is that many of them come back in their 30s. Remember that God is not done with His children. And when they fall away, God will be with them. Now, how was God with the prodigal son? Well, 
Afflictions are a good thing in our lives. I said that just a moment ago. God may be with them in chastening. But maybe they're suffered to endure that. And then God brings the affliction. And then they return to the fold. And in their life is a beautiful story of grace and forgiveness and repentance. And they might be far more appreciative of God's grace in their life than someone who never had departed to begin with. We have to remember that the story of God and every single one of His children is an individual story between God and one of His children. I think if I were to take a census of all of us who are adults and and have been adults for, for many, many years, decades... If I were to ask you about your prodigal seasons, you'd be able to tell me about times when you were not in the faith, times that you departed, times that you went astray. Think of God's working in your life when you went astray. And then view your departed friends, your departed perhaps even children, in the light of your story. God isn't done with them. This isn't the end. The prodigal son was a prodigal son. God will be with them, which is number three, even if it means afflictions. What was it that the prodigal experienced that caused him to come to himself? He found himself in a rough shape. He was starving to death and he was feeding swine and no one would even give him the food that the swine would eat, which is what he would have put in his stomach. And he comes to himself. Like David came to himself, like after the Damascus Road experience, Paul came to himself. So number four, there's always hope that one who departed will return. Now we struggle with that in this world. Friends, family, even at times our own parents, our own children. And I can think of nothing more heart-wrenching than when someone that we know and love leaves the worship of God. But there is hope. There is hope. Number five, crucial to this is the coming to himself moment, which is what the affliction served to assist. Number six, repentance, conversion, and discipleship all involve this gut-wrenching feeling of unworthiness. We find our worth only in Christ. And because of the affliction, that comes to light as we view ourselves versus what we should be what we've done versus what we ought to have done. Applying this very personally to ourselves, we should be like which of these two men? We should be like the father and not like the older brother. When we see a sinner repent, whether it be someone in our family, someone that's just off the street that we've never met a day in our lives, we should view that repentance and rejoice. We should rejoice every time If there's joy in heaven when one sinner repents, 
What sort of joy ought there to be in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? If it causes the angels to rejoice, then the church ought to rejoice. Number eight, God is always kind and gracious as the Father was to His children when they turned to Him. What is the word? Rejoice. If you're thinking, there is no way that I can be a disciple. There is no way I can follow Christ. I believe in Him and I I feel conviction of my sin. In fact, I feel myself to be so unworthy, but as sinful as I am, God would never have me. If that's how you feel, let me be the first to tell you, you're wrong. You're wrong. Cast your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Come unto Him, ye that labor and are heavy laden, and He will give you rest. If you struggle with the feeling of unworthiness as did the prodigal, that's the perfect mindset to have as you journey to the feet of Christ.